Well, I want to welcome you all to our first session. Uh, of course, in Christian ethics, that the session of the St. Paul's Presbyterian Church is sponsoring this quarter, and it's my pleasure to be able to uh, to teach it. Um, now, in order to teach it and to do it in a way that's going to be profitable to you, I'm going to lay down a few um, ground rules. Um, I have taught ethics a number of times, um, uh, three or four different places in this country, and uh, at different levels of uh, uh, graduate or um, undergraduate training. Uh, consequently, it will be very easy for me to sometimes start galloping along at a rate which is uh, too fast for you to take notes or too fast for you to think through, and that's no good. Or from time to time I may lapse into philosophies, that is a vocabulary which is completely um, unique and strange to you. Uh, I'm intending not to do that, but if I should do it, I, w I wish for you to stop me. I will not be conscious on my part. It will just be uh, something that's habitual. And so um, if I say something which doesn't seem clear to you, or if I start going too fast, or I start using vocabulary that's unfamiliar to you, please stop me. Um, we're a small enough group this evening that uh, I don't think it's necessary to have the formality of raising your hand or anything. Please just speak out whenever you might have a question. <coughs> or if you wish to stop me to go back or to ask about something, then you might want to raise your hand to stop me like that. But if I say something you don't understand, do stop me, all right? So that I can go back and say it a different way, make sure everybody understands. Is that an agreed upon way of conducting this class? Now, we're going to be meeting for the next 10 Monday evenings uh, beginning tonight, March 19th, through May 21. And we'll be meeting for three hours a night with a uh, 10 or 15 minute break after the first hour and 20 minutes or so. So it'll be just about divided in half with a, with a break. And um, as the announcement said, the readings for this course will be completely optional. If you would like to do them, you're free to do so. And if you would like to take some exams, um, obviously it doesn't go on a transcript anywhere, but if you would like to have the benefit of me evaluating how you're comprehending the course, how you're getting along in the reading or the lectures, I'll from time to time offer uh, exams that you can take home and do at your convenience, and I'll be glad to grade them for you. However, uh, nobody is required to do that. Okay, the readings are optional as well. I'm going to give you some reading right now on the blackboard that you can pursue if you'd like to as supplementation to the course. But nobody need do the reading. Uh, the course should be uh, somewhat self-explanatory even without it. Tonight's lesson is going to be um, a very unique title for tonight's lesson, Introduction, <laughs> and Philosoph Introduction to and Philosophy of ethics. And those who would like to do some background reading can pick up my book, Theonomy and Christian Ethics, and uh, read over chapters 1 and 14. Then if you'll pick up Dr. Van Til's book, now this is for the more advanced students. A number of you will find it difficult to read Van Til even if you have some training in philosophy, and uh, those who don't will find it almost uh, impossible. So I'm warning you in advance. But if you'd like to tackle it and really get your teeth into something, I would have you read Van Til's Christian Theistic Ethics. Christian Theistic Ethics. I'll abbreviate this. Cornelius Van Til, CVT. And I'd like you to look at chapters 1, 3, and 4, 7, and 14 through 18. It's the bulk of the book. But we're going to be dealing here with philosophical issues tonight uh, in large measure. And that's what Van Til, of course, is very strong um, at, and so I'd encourage you to look at that if, um, if you're interested. And then finally, for those of you who have John Murray's Principles of Conduct, Principles of Conduct, just look at pages 11 to 14. These are not chapters, just pages 11 to 14. 
Okay, now this is, this is background for tonight's uh, discussion and lecture, if you wish to have it. Next week, we're going to be looking at the goal of ethics. And there's not a whole lot of reading. In Theonomy, look at chapter 24. And in Van Til, look at chapters 5 and 6, and then 8 to 10. Now, for April 2nd, the next Monday evening together, we'll be looking at the motive for ethics. And there you should be looking at Theonomy chapters 3, 4, and 7, and Van Til chapter 13, and especially John Murray. Principles of Conduct, Chapters 9 and 10. Okay, I'll stop at that point. That'll just give you enough to get started if you wish to do some outside reading. Tonight we'll be looking at the introduction to and the philosophy of ethics. Next Monday evening, Lord willing, we'll be looking at the goal of ethics and then the Monday evening after that, the motive for ethics. Uh, just so you have some idea of where the course is going eventually, uh, I'll just go through the topics for the successive Monday evenings. Uh, you can just follow along. Uh, after we study the goal of ethics and the motive of ethics, we'll study the standard of ethics. Then the evening after that, we'll study the law and particular problems pertaining to the law, have, especially the law and the spirit, the question of guidance, the law and freedom, the question of adiaphora. Uh, then the law and love, or the law in our situation, situational ethics will be taken up, and the law and conflicts within the law, the whole issue of tragic moral choice. Okay, so that's for the evening after we study the standard. Then the next evening will be a study of social ethics. And the evening after that, a question of how to use the law, and we'll be studying in detail commands one and two of the Ten Commandments. The evening after that, commands three, four, and five in related issues. The evening after that, commands six and seven in related issues. And then finally, our last evening together, May 21st, commands eight, nine, and ten in related issues. All right. Anything you'd like to ask about the administration of the course, um, the reading, and the outline? It's rather mundane, not very exciting. Well, let's jump right into the content then. We're going to start looking at an introduction to and the philosophy of ethics. And let me say, I'd like to start by asking somebody a question. Let's, let's pick on Ted Lester to begin tonight. Ted, I'm curious. Let's say that last weekend on Saturday, you were out shopping in uh, Kosciuszko, Mississippi, and you bought for yourself uh, an item in the store and uh, gave the cashier, say, $20.00. The cashier gave you the receipt and your change. Now, you did not notice until Saturday evening when you got home, all the way back in Jackson, which is, what, about a two-hour drive? Hour and a half drive? Anyway, a, a good long drive. You noticed that the cashier gave you one penny too much. Now, what I want to know is, is it, more, is it your moral obligation to drive all the way back to Kosciuszko to pay back the one penny? Now, there's one approach to ethics, you see, coming out already. <laughs> it's called the arbitrary approach to ethics. <laughs> I would say no, I don't believe I would be obligated to drive back to Kosciuszko. Oh, 
Are you suggesting you would be you would be obligated to mail the penny back? Yes. Okay. So that, according to Ted's um, gut level reaction to this extremely important moral issue of our day, uh, Ted would uh, pay fifteen cents in a postage stamp to return one cent to the store. Anybody who would do otherwise? Anybody who would just pocket the penny and just leave it at that? Okay. A good number of you would. And so, <laughs> Did you ask what I would do or what I should do? <laughs> ah, ah, this is good, you see. That's one of the basic distinctions that you must pay attention to if you're going to be introduced to ethics. Ted has brought it up very well. Ethics is not a question of what people in fact do. That's called description. Describing what people do is totally irrelevant to ethics. Ethics is a question of what people should do. And therefore, we cannot uh, gain our ethical conclusions on the basis of a, um, a series of studies of how people in fact behave. Can't, because it can turn out that people in fact behave immorally. Consequently, ethics is a question of how people ought to behave, or what they should do, not what they in fact do. Richard Jones, let me uh, ask you another question. Let us say that it was within your power this evening to um, assassinate Idi Amin. Now, I want to give you the background to this. Idi Amin is known to have killed, martyred, probably well in excess of 30,000 Christians. He has also unjustly killed any number of his countrymen, totally apart from the religious issue. He is perhaps the modern expression of what a former generation would consider a Hitler. Many people have called him a madman. What I wish to know is, if you had the ability, without any threat to yourself, and without any consequences, and without anybody ever finding out about it, would you, in fact, kill Idi Amin? Do you think you should? My reaction is probably not. Hmm. <laughs> Let me shock you. I'm sorely tempted to think it's your moral obligation to do it. I'm seriously. Now we haven't gotten all the way down to the sixth commandment, "Thou shalt not kill," and it, and we're not going to get into a lengthy discussion of that particular issue tonight. But I'm wondering if anybody would uh, disagree with. Um, uh, well, anybody who would agree with me that perhaps it is our moral obligation to kill such a monster. Is there anybody who thinks that Richard is right, that he, um, whether he would or not, that he ought not to kill Edie, I mean, even if he had the opportunity to do so without any threat to his own life? I thought he shouldn't have the state What if the state is the very monster that needs to be dealt with? Who judges the state? I still thought we should not. Okay. Would you suggest, Nanny, that perhaps only the Lord should judge Idi Amin and that no human has the right to bring vengeance against him? No, I, I feel like the state has the responsibility in the state not doing it and seeing an error, but I thought that the state in power should not have the responsibility Yes. Well, don't feel badly about thinking that, because that is, uh, people strenuously argue for that point of view. And in general, I think probably everybody in this room would hold it too. But now we're talking about a very extreme situation where the state is unjust, and there seems no way to counterbalance that through lower magistrates or appeal to the Supreme Court or something like that. Okay. Because the state has 
from the lower end. The Lord wasn't giving the power to the state at the time, and that must mean the Lord had a purpose for it. Well, now, if I had an, uh, an appendicitis attack tonight, would you feel that it would be wrong to take me to the hospital to take care of that since, according to your reasoning a second ago, that's in the Lord's hands and there's some reason for that and I should allow myself to go through with the appendicitis attack? No, I just thought that uh, if the state in power is in power, that the Okay. Annie's expressing a point of view that's considered an absolutist point of view. Absolutism in ethics means there are no exceptions to the rule. Okay? This is an absolute standard. One never disobeys or attacks the state. Okay. Now, we have some difficulty with absolutism when it comes to uh, an ethical principle like that. We know that Peter and Paul and others of the apostles disobeyed the state on many occasions. Uh, now, whether one should attack the state in a violent way becomes another question altogether. Those who believe that the state should never be attacked must then, to be consistent, also believe that the Boston Tea Party was immoral and that the American War of Independence, also called the American Revolution sometimes, it was immoral because that was an attack upon the state. It was disobedience to the state. Now, we prepared to accept those conclusions. I am. Okay. <laughs> Annie may be very much uh, moral in moral in the uh, in the correct sense of the word than some of us would be because what she's saying is if I'm committed to a principle I wish to be consistent with the principle. Ethics is not arbitrary. Uh, all a Ted Lester flipping a coin to decide. <laughs> Ethics is principled. All a Annie Bell. And when one has a principle, then one must be consistent with that principle. Now we have to decide whether that is the right principle and whether it's properly stated and all that as well. Let's try another illustration before I do something else tonight. Don, let me ask you if, um, if you believe that it was um, the right thing for Socrates to do when he was imprisoned and was going to suffer the death penalty for what I think we would all deem less than a capital crime for allegedly corrupting the youth of Athens, when in fact his only real offense is that he said things that people couldn't refute and he was just basically in the way. Um, now he was in prison and he had the opportunity to escape. Moreover, it was the custom in Athens for men convicted of such crimes to escape because that was a way of, uh, way of imposing exile on them. Now given the custom of Athens, given the injustice of the situation, the harshness of the penalty, did Socrates make the right decision by refusing to leave the prison and insisting upon going to his death. Um, I'd be inclined to say uh, he made the wrong decision. Say that again? He made the wrong decision. He made the wrong decision. Anybody think he made the right decision? According to what he values. Well, one's got to know what his values are. Given, he made the wrong do you think he made the wrong decision? Nobody thinks that civil obedience is the right decision. Do you remember the classic argument of Socrates? He said that if everybody did this, there would be, in fact, no respect for authority, and therefore I would create more harm and bring more unjust situations into the presence of the state if I did this sort of thing. One must respect the greater authority of his peers. I thought Christians thought that sort of thing. He almost sounds like an implicit Christian at that point, doesn't he? Some philosophers have said that he was. Except yes. the justice has to uh, go along with the crime, you see. 
Well, in Athens, remember, the penalty was meted out by the high court. Like I say, it was the custom to let people escape under such circumstances and impose an exile on them. But Socrates said, no, that would be disrespectful to the authority of the state. But nobody thinks he should have stayed. You know, that's amazing. I once taught this course and began with a series of questions like this. And when I asked that question, virtually everybody in the class thought that he made a, uh, uh, a correct decision, that um, he was being obedient to the state and that's what ought to be done. Now, if you should think that, then the question becomes, was it right for Peter to leave prison when the angel appeared to him and let his, uh, his shackles fall off and the door fly open? You know, it's the old uh, sauce for the goose and, and sauce for the gander sort of thing. If Socrates ought not to escape, should Peter? Let's try one more on you, okay? And, and, and then we will go on. Nancy Guys. The Mexican government will not allow people to enter the country, will not grant a visa for entry into the, into the country and work in the country if the declared intent of the person is to be a Christian missionary, a Protestant missionary in particular. What I want to know is, is it appropriate for Christians then to enter Mexico apart from the station checks, apart from the border checks, to uh, become wetbacks in reverse is what it amounts to, and to go into Mexico in order they might preach the gospel? Yeah. It is. Everybody agree with that? We can disobey the, um, the authority, the duly constituted authority of the Mexican government and enter, cross the border at a place where you're not supposed to cross, not show the appropriate papers, and to enter to do work which is contrary to the decree of the government? Sure. I have a hard time figuring out where this class is going, you know? <laughs> you all think Socrates should run away. You all think he should run across the border. But we shouldn't kill Idi Amin. <coughs> yeah. Question of consistency. You have to know what your principles are and how to apply them. Um, now, if you should feel that it was wrong to enter Mexico apart from the station where the checking of visas is done in a proper immigration procedure, then we have to stop and ask, what about Paul being um, uh, delivered from the city in a basket through the window so that he would not have to go through the gate where the king's messengers were waiting? Okay, so here's an example of Paul not following the, um, the proper custom and checking with the authorities as he was going either in or out of the city. All right, just a few questions. Do you return the penny? Do you kill the dictator? Do you, um, do you leave prison when you have the opportunity? Do you smuggle yourself into a country? Well, obviously the one question strikes us as extremely trivial. Uh, another question may strike us as a matter of Christian principle, and a further que uh, question may strike us as being of the highest import in ethics having to do with the taking of a human life. What is ethics? Well, in, in the easiest way of putting it, ethics is answering those kind of questions. It's what you call an ostensive definition of ethics. I'm pointing to certain issues and saying ethics is trying to make up your mind on those kind of issues. And why should we study ethics? We're going to come back and give a better definition of ethics in a minute, but I want to know why we should bother to go through this sort of thing. Uh, you might be inclined to think, having seen the way people respond to these questions or even imagining how people might respond, well, I mean, these are the sorts of things that... You know, nobody can resolve. I mean, there's this to be said on this side and this to be said on that side, and how can anybody ever tell for sure? I can sympathize with that. I've studied ethics for a, a number of years at a lot of different levels of educational training, and I know the frustration of saying there is no way out of this impasse. There's no way to convince the other party. 
But I also know, and I trust that I'm learning day by day, that that's one of the most deadly things that you can resign yourself to if you wish to be a man of God or a woman of God. Because the Bible was given to us that we might know what God expects of us. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, says Paul, and is profitable. Now, many Calvinists, many Reformed people, have a tendency to stop with the first thing scripture is profitable for. It's profitable for doctrine. And praise the Lord, it is. And we need to have our doctrine. But Paul does not stop there. He says it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for instruction in righteousness. Right? That the man of God may be what? Thoroughly furnished unto every good work. There's not one issue in life, not one good work that you're called upon to do. And sometimes that means you're not sure what the good work is. Do you shoot the dictator? Do you not? Which is the good work? There's not one good work that Scripture will not guide you to do. Paul says, all Scripture given by inspiration of God is profitable for that very purpose, to instruct you in righteousness. And so as um, frustrating as it can be when some of these questions are raised, we as Christians must insist that we have a standard and we have a way of answering these questions. God has given us sufficient guidance. I want to suggest to you that there are many pressures for us to get involved in ethics as Christians, and especially today, to get involved in ethics as Christians. First of all, why should Christians be involved in ethics? I think there's kind of a logic to the Christian faith that requires, that forces us to give a great attention to ethics. I think that logic goes something like this. You see, if you really believe that God is sovereign, if you really believe in the sovereignty of God, then you're going to be motivated to obey him and to serve him. I mean, if God is sovereign, nobody can respond to that doctrine of the sovereignty of God and say, well, it really makes no difference how I live. My conduct is irrelevant to the sovereign. No, if God is over all, if God is the king, if God is the Lord, if God is sovereign, then everything that I do makes a difference. And I can't serve him without being diligent and wondering what my sovereign, what my king, what my Lord would have me to do. I say there's a logic to the Christian faith that impels us to get involved in ethics then. If we say that God is sovereign, we are saying that he's the Lord. But that's, you see, just the other side of the coin of saying that if he's the Lord, then I'm the servant. And one cannot be a servant. One cannot truly address his Lord without wishing to know what the bidding of the Lord would be. God controls and God decides what is right and wrong, and it is our obligation as his servants to obey him in every area of our lives. And so I say there's a kind of logic to the Christian faith that impels us to study ethics. But there's also many pressures today for us to get involved in ethics. Pressures, first of all, from outside the Christian church. All sorts of issues being raised, and our society seems to be drifting, not knowing how to answer such questions. And these questions affect the lifestyle of the Christian. Questions having to do with medical ethics, having to do with abortion, having to do with genetic engineering, having to do with crime and punishment and taxation and money and property and sexuality and the media and on and on and on. You see, our society is facing any number of problems which previous generations didn't know. Moreover, there's a great deal of pressure from the liberal camp of theology for those of us who are conservative evangelicals, those of us who are reformed in our outlook to be involved in ethics. For you see, it's turned out that the liberals have no answers. When liberal theologians answer the pressing ethical questions of our day, I dare say they are nothing but a pale reflection of the humanism around them. 
By the way, it's the humanists who tell us that. You don't have to be a conservative theologian to note that. The humanists say, there's really no difference between what these theologians, quote-unquote, are saying and what we're saying. They simply baptize it with religious language. And so I think there are pressures from outside and from inside the professing church for us to become passionately involved in the issues of our day. Let me add another thing to that, and that I'm going to expound on at some length now. The third reason why we need to get involved in ethics is because religion and ethics are inseparable. Religion and an ethics are inseparable. You see, doctrine, according to the Bible, has ethical implications. In fact, the very study of theology, doctrine itself assumes a particular moral stance. For instance, if one says that he believes in the sovereignty of God, he's already taking a certain moral view of God, isn't he? I mean, that's just not sort of, you know, a trite question tucked away in an encyclopedia somewhere. Like, how many square feet are there in the uh, uh, country of Italy, or something like that? You know, is God sovereign? No. To profess to believe in the sovereignty of God is to have an ethical attitude already, to stand in a relationship to him. Moreover, we mustn't think that belief at all points precedes practice for the Christian. The Bible, I think, teaches us in any number of places that our practice or the change of our life or the renewal of our heart makes it possible for us to perceive proper doctrine. So it's not as though you can have your doctrine and then someday if you want to, you can add a little appendix to that and that's a moral life. The Bible says one must have a moral life in order to ascertain proper doctrine. To read the Bible correctly, one must have his heart renewed. One must be walking in the Spirit. One must be led by the Spirit. One must have Spirit-opened eyes. And so it's impossible for us to talk about doctrine without also talking about ethics. Moreover, when we talk about the Lord, we talk about him as the Lord precisely because he governs all areas of life, including our mind and our affections and our attitudes and our behavior. You know, at an even deeper level, I think we might be able to say also that one cannot separate theology, a theoretical understanding, if you will, of the Bible, from a moral life, because it's precisely in a moral life that one's theology is demonstrated. Let me give you an outside illustration. Let's say I'm trying to teach my son, Jonathan. Uh, well, Jonathan's already got this down, so let me say David. Let me say I'm trying to teach my son, David, how to count by twos. Now, all of my children can count by ones already. But there's a new concept I want them to have. I want David to have the concept of counting by twos. Okay, so let's say that I'm now going to demonstrate to my small four-year-old son how to count by twos. And I say, David, this is counting by twos. Okay, if you have the number line, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. David, counting by twos means you go two... Four, six, eight, ten. And I say, David, do you understand what counting by twos means now? Now, if my son says, yes, Daddy, I understand counting by twos. And I say, David, count by twos. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Does he understand counting by twos? No. You see, the understanding is the ability to do what the concept requires. Do you really understand the sovereignty of God tonight? Do you really understand what it means for God to be the Lord? Well, 
the way to find that out is not simply by start asking you the meaning of certain Bible verses, although that's part of it. To, to know whether you really understand that concept of God's lordship and sovereignty is to ask whether you know how to behave in relationship to that concept. Okay, how do I know when David can count by two? I know that he can count by twos when he can go on, when he can put the concept into practice. Okay, so I've done two, four, six, eight, ten. The day comes that I'm convinced David knows how to count by twos when he says two, four, six, eight, ten, twelve, fourteen, sixteen, eighteen. You see, I've taken him this far, and he understands now the concept. He can go on and apply it to a further range of problems, if you will. If you understand the sovereignty of God, if you understand that Christ is your Savior, if you understand the inspiration of the Bible, if you understand that Jesus is coming again in judgment, I dare say you understand those things when you know how to apply those teachings in your life, when you know how to take them and apply them to problems of living, when you know what the concept implies for your behavior. You see, you can't separate the theoretical from the practical. Now, that's a modern heresy. It's impossible for one to know properly unless one knows how properly. Go ahead, Nan. Are you making a distinction between knowing how and actually No, I should say that uh, knowing how is the application. I wouldn't distinguish those two. Well, what about imperfection? Ah, moral perversity. When people know how, but don't do it. Well, that's a problem of sanctification. It's a problem of working out the effects of the, um, uh, the bondage of sin in our life. That's a matter of uh, being conformed more and more to the will of God, to the stature of Christ. That's a very definite problem in Christian ethics, a definite problem of sanctification. It pertains to the moral agent. And we're going to be talking about that in time. All right. Basically, what I've been trying to tell you tonight is that we've got to study ethics if we're Christians. That doesn't mean you have to take a Monday night course from Greg Vonson. But Christians must be interested in ethics. Uh, even if they don't take a formal course in it all their lives, they must be studying ethics. They must be involved in the questions of behavior. Okay. If Christians must study ethics, what is it they study? I gave you some examples of ethical issues, but we didn't really talk about what ethics itself was. Now, I want to talk about some of the distinctives of ethics before I go on to give a Christian definition. Ethics involves the study of what is right and wrong. However, I want to add to that that ethics is not merely the study of right and wrong. <coughs> ethics is also involved in the study of motivation and the practice of what is right and wrong. I'll just put motivation down here. Now, this is a distinctively Christian opinion that I am expressing to you tonight, when I studied in graduate school, I was told over and over again that ethics is simply the discovery of our obligations, that it does not seek to find motivation for what is right and wrong. Ethics is not doing right, I was told. Ethics is discovering the right. Well, that seems to make sense, right? Bertrand Russell put it this way, quote, propositions about practice are not themselves practical propositions. 
any more than propositions about gases are gaseous. Ah, seems to make sense. When one is studying propositions about gases, he's not studying a gas. And when one is studying propositions about practice, he's not practicing. John Hospers, libertarian candidate for president um, eight years ago, and my ethics instructor in graduate school put it this way. Finding true principles is not the same thing as acting upon them. Ethics is concerned to find the truth about these moral questions, not to try to make us act upon them. Well, that's right and wrong. There is, of course, a distinction between our objective duty and our personal behavior. And see, Susan was bringing that out a moment ago when she said, well, sometimes we know what's right, but we don't do it. Okay, so you know the right proposition. Say X, Y, and Z is true, or is, is a proper expression of the Lord's will. But I don't do X, Y, and Z. So consequently, we do want to draw a distinction between our objective duty, knowing what the duty is, and our personal behavior, whether we conform to or whether we defy the norm that we've, we've already stated. However, that distinction doesn't say anything about what is required as far as the process of coming to know what our duty is. Yes, yeah, so that's the difference between my duty and whether I do my duty. But we're talking about how does one come to know his duty? And I'm suggesting that one cannot come to know what is right and wrong apart from motivation and practice. That is, one must be an ethical person in order to find the right conclusions in ethics. Walking in the light, to use a biblical expression, and ethical maturity lead us to discern the Lord's will. Indeed, the Bible teaches us that a proper knowledge of the Lord's will requires righteous living on our part. Let's look at some passages quickly here. First of all, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service. And be not fashioned according to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Okay, what's Paul talking about up to this point? Talking about one's lifestyle. He's talking about one's behavior and conduct. He's talking about the practice of ethics and morality. Present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Be renewed in your mind. And why must you do all these things? So that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, that Greek word, dakamadzein, to prove or approve what is the perfect will of God, means to know what God's will is, to be able to apply God's will and define God's will in particular cases. And what Paul is saying is, if you present your body a living sacrifice, that will enable you to understand the will of God. You say, wait a minute, Paul. I've got to understand the will of God so that I can present my body a living sacrifice. How can I be holy if I don't know what holiness requires? Well, I think what Paul is getting at here is that one learns what God requires, one does it, presents his body a holy and living sacrifice. And in so doing, he enables himself to discern more and more the will of God. That is, his doctrinal apprehension is aided by the ethical or moral character of his life. That is, the change of the, of the character the motivation and practice of morality helps one to make moral decisions. The same sort of thing is taught in Hebrews 5, verse 14. Hebrews 
So what's the problem in Hebrews 5? Some Bible student tell me now. What's the difficulty here? Okay, what's the author talking about? Melchizedek. And he starts giving this theology, very uh, intricate, beautiful theology about Melchizedek. And he comes to a point and he stops and he says, I can't go any further. Why not? Verse 11. Of whom, that is Melchizedek, we have many things to say and hard of interpretation, seeing that you have become dull of hearing. He says, I want to tell you a lot more about Melchizedek, but I can't because you're dull, you're ignorant, you're unable to grasp this. For when by reason of time you ought to be teachers, you have need again that someone teach you the rudiments of the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not solid food. For everyone that partakes of milk is without experience of the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. See, those who are immature in the faith, those who are babes in the faith, do not have experience in the word of righteousness. Notice that the author doesn't say that they lack a certain number of Sunday school classes about the Bible, or they haven't read the scriptures enough. He says they lack experience in the scriptures. They lack the application of the scriptures to their lives. And so verse 14 says, solid food is for full-grown men. How does one become a full-grown man instead of a babe? Those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern good and evil. The mature Christian can discern good and evil because he has a lot of practice at it. His senses, his moral senses, have been exercised so that he's become strong in the Lord and now can use the Bible in a way which an immature Christian cannot. And so I, I'm pressing this in upon you so that you'll realize that ethics is not simply a matter of discovering right and wrong because one can't really discover right and wrong at a very mature level unless he's living according to the standards of right and wrong. By use, by exercise, does one's ethical discernment grow. Let's look at another passage that shows us that knowledge requires righteous living. How about John 7, verse 17? If any man wills to do his will, he shall know of the teaching whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. Jesus says, you want to know whether, whether what I'm saying is from God or whether it's simply another human opinion? Well, then he gives a certain apologetical procedure to go through, right? You apply the canons of logic and sense experience and existential satisfaction and all that sort of thing, right? Wrong. Jesus says, if you want to know if this teaching is of God, then you must will to do God's will. The man who will understand his doctrine properly is the man who does the will of God. Right living begets right theology. Now let me just give you a little behind-the-scenes explanation of why I keep talking about this tonight in our opening hour. It's because we who are Reformed Christians have been told over and over and over again that truth is unto godliness, that doctrine is unto life, and what we've been told is true, but it's only half the story. You see, I don't want you to believe that somehow you can just go out there and start living morally without looking at the Bible, without listening to what the pastor says when he preaches the Word of God to you, without learning what the will of God is. 
But on the other hand, I don't want you to think that you can properly learn the will of God and grow in your Christian faith and apprehend doctrine and God's will at a mature level without also living the will of God, which is what the Bible is teaching us in the particular passages we're looking at tonight. Ethics must be a matter of practical life as well as the study of practice. Ethics is a matter of living right and wrong as well as studying right and wrong. And so as uh, convincing as Hospers or Bertrand Russell may have been, uh, they are contradicting the Word of God. And anybody who contradicts the Word of God is not very convincing to us. Okay, let me put down another distinction here. We need to start moving a little bit faster. It's one we've already talked about somewhat. The distinction between prescriptive studies and descriptive studies. Okay, let us say that National Geographic goes to some place over in um, Africa and does a study of the tribal customs of some people in Africa. All right, now the person who does the study with National Geographic is studying ethics, right? Tribal customs, conduct, practice of morality. But is that a prescriptive study of ethics or a descriptive study of ethics? of some people in Africa. All right, now the person who does the study with National Geographic is studying ethics, right? Tribal customs, conduct, practice of morality. But is that a prescriptive study of ethics or a descriptive study of ethics? Descriptive. Is there anybody who does not see why we say that? Need not be embarrassed. Anybody who does not see the difference between describing what is happening and prescribing what ought to happen. Okay? We're going to be doing a study of prescriptive ethics, not descriptive ethics. I'm not going to be describing for you very much what uh, certain people say about ethics or how certain societies live. I'm going to be trying to show what the Bible prescribes for us. We're going to be talking about right and wrong. By God's grace, we're going to be living what is right and wrong. We're going to be studying what God wants us to do, how we should behave. Let me give you another distinction here. Okay. Let's distinguish between desire and demand. Morality should be set in contrast to individual prudence. The moral point of view does not determine what is right or wrong wholly on the basis of a personal desire or what is to some individual's interest. I'm not saying anything here that you as Christians probably haven't uh, realized for a long time. And that's that it doesn't make it right just because it gets you ahead. It doesn't make it right just because you enjoy it. So we live in a very undisciplined and immoral society which on all sides tells us to do what makes you feel good. To do it if it satisfies you. And the philosophy is different strokes for different folks. Not everybody has the same desires. Not everybody's satisfied in the same way. Consequently, do your own thing. Be your own person. Know who you are above all and satisfy yourself. And the Christian says, no, ethics is not a study of one's personal desires. It's a study of God's demand. Or if you will, I'll put it to you another way for those who are taking notes. Ethics uh, is not a question of self-interest. It's a question of self-regulation. 
the ethical man is a man who regulates his behavior and attitudes rather than indulges in them because he's interested or desires them. All right, let me also put up here the distinction between um, custom and command. Or, if you will, the distinction between convention and command. There's a sense in which morality is like the laws of our land. It's like law. It's like jurisprudence. Ethics is more like that than it is like convention or custom because convention and custom can deal with things that have very little import at all. All right? Um, let see if I can give you an example. It may be the custom in this country for the man to pull out the chair when the lady is to sit down. Okay, that may be a custom. I wouldn't say that it's uh, invested with a great deal of moral significance, although, I mean, we believe in being polite and all that, and there are new definitions of what is polite today with women's liberation, but I don't want to get into all that. I mean, you see the difference between what is a custom and what is a command. And I'm saying that morality is more like law and less like custom. It deals with matters of great social importance in a prescriptive fashion. It goes beyond our convenience and beyond our taste to find out what is commanded. Ah, uh, but there's another side to the story. Ethics is, in some regards, more like custom than it is like law or like command. Before I tell you why, can anybody tell me why? What is it about law, social law, that ethics isn't like? What's the difference? <laughs> yeah. Ever watch these game shows where the person, you know, pushes the button and he says, oh yeah, what was the question? <laughs> I have just said that ethics is more like command or law than it is akin to custom. But there's a sense in which it's more like custom, too. More like custom than it is like law. And I'm saying, how would that be? In what regard? In what sense? All right, is the law... I think, tonight, that when we all go home, we can't drive more than 55 miles an hour on the interstate, right? Tomorrow, could that change? Yeah, well, we take a majority vote of, of the legislature, and it could change. Okay, so it's like this one day, and it's different another. Is morality like that? No, it's much more like custom. It's well-established and does not change by arbitrar arbitrary fiat. Even those who believe in women's liberation and don't want men to pull out chairs for women any longer cannot change it overnight because it's a matter of custom. And what I'm saying is morality or ethics is more like custom and convention in this respect than it is like law. Well, now another distinction which you'll all understand, I'm sure. The distinction between might and right. Which is ethics more like? Might or right? Obviously, right. It's more like right. Might does not make right. That's what we say. And so the sanctions of ethics are never found merely in physical strength or coercion. Let us say that the state had the power to coerce you to do something against the Ten Commandments. Would that make it right? No. They may punish you and punish you even to the point of execution, but it would never make it right. Might and right are different things. But now let's ask from the other point of view, 
Isn't there a difference between compulsion and maturity also? Right, I compel my children not to fight sometimes. I have a paddle at home that does a very good job of that. I trust that when they grow up in their maturity, both personal and Christian maturity, they will regulate their own behavior so that they will not fight. Okay? Does that mean that it is immoral for me to use might in the service of right? So that the day will come when compulsion is not necessary but maturity is taken over? Let us say that my children are not mature and because I think there's a difference between might and right, I don't compel them to do what is right. Have I made a good moral decision? No. See, there are times when it's better to be compelled and to do the right than to stand back and expect maturity to take over when it doesn't. All right? Now, let me distinguish... Uh, I have a number of them here in my notes, but I just want to give you one more. Let me distinguish between envy and respect. I'm going to give you two different questions. I want you to tell me which is the question pertaining to ethics. Okay, here's the first question. When is a person truly well-off? Or what constitutes human well-being? What constitutes human welfare? That's one question. Another question is, what sort of person is a truly good human being? In a sense, we're asking in these two questions, who is to be envied and who is to be respected? All right, is Rockefeller to be envied? Well, that probably those of you who are shaking your heads no are thinking of weighing a number of values. And you're saying that there were some values not realized in the man's life and others were. But let's just think about wealth. Is a wealthy man to be envied? Is that a matter of human welfare to have a lot of money? Those of us tonight who have very little of it will be inclined to see the obvious answer. Yes, it is to be envied. Now, of course, I'm using envy here not in the sense of lusting after or coveting in the sense we break the law of God, but I do want to use that just to, to, by means of contrast to respect. But are wealthy men to be respected no matter what, just because we may envy their money? No, obviously not. We may think very poorly a lot of wealthy men. Remember the story that Jesus told of the rich man and Lazarus? Which man do you envy? Lazarus or the rich man before the day of their death? Well, the rich man. You don't want the dogs to lick your sores, right? You don't want to eat the crumbs from his table. But on the other hand, who do you respect? You respect Lazarus, and you don't respect the rich man. Ethics has to do with the question of respect. Who is the truly good human being? How does one lead a good life? Not... How does one gain the good life? How does one get into an enviable position? Okay. I think there's some purpose served in going through some of these distinctions because they're very easy to overlook as we get involved in some di difficult questions of morality. We often enough will fall into the other side of the distinction once we uh, have acknowledged, I mean, even though we've already acknowledged what the difference is. We've, um, we've talked about religion and ethics, and we've talked about ethical distinctives. I want to do something kind of formal here and less discussion-oriented. I just want to give you a definition of ethics. I think that is um, not the only possible definition, but it is a Christian definition of ethics. Uh, to save time, I won't write it on the board. 
uh, but I will say it slowly so you can get it into your notes. Ethics is bringing God's word to bear upon men. Is bringing God's word to bear upon men so as to deepen their covenantal relation with him. I'll repeat that much of it. Bringing God's word to bear upon men so as to deepen their covenantal relation with him. By answering questions of the form, by answering questions of the form, what does the whole Bible say to me about X? What does the whole Bible say to me about X? As a means of determining, as a means of determining what persons, acts, and attitudes, as a means of determining what persons, acts, and attitudes receive God's blessing through obedience and which ones issue in judgment through disobedience. That last portion again. As a means of determining what persons, acts, and attitudes receive God's blessing through obedience and which ones issue in judgment through disobedience. This definition is a long definition, and basically what it does is it starts with the concept of theology, then incorporates the concept of the knowledge of God, narrows this to the concept of systematic theology, and then finally to ethics. So let me show you where the break points are, because I think it's important to see how all these things relate to one another. I'll read the whole thing and go back and chop it up for you. Ethics is bringing God's word to bear upon men so as to deepen their covenantal relation with him. By answering questions of the form, what does the whole Bible say to me about X? As a means of determining what persons, acts, and attitudes receive God's blessing through obedience and which ones issue in judgment through disobedience. Okay, let's start again. Ethics is bringing God's word to bear upon men that's what theology is, bringing God's word to bear upon men. <coughs> Bill Chapman, do you understand this concept of theology, bringing God's word to bear upon men? What's the difference between exegetical theology and systematic theology? Systematic theology is, uh, takes what exegetical theology has dug up and organizes it into uh, logical schemes. You mean the Bible's illogical? <laughs> it is given serially, and uh, we look at it in parallel. It is given through time, and we look at what was recorded at this time, and this time, and this time, and take themes from it. Which, which one brings God's word to bear upon men? Both of them. Both of them. What's the difference between them, then? Uh, uh, 
exegetical theology is is a tool of interpretation, and systematic theology is more uh, taking the tool and applying it. Oh, so systematics is the application. Okay. Yeah, that's weird. No! It will do in some curriculums. It won't do in mine. <laughs> All theology is application. All theology is bringing God's word to bear upon men. The difference between exegetical theology, the study of particular passages, is that exegetical theology looks at particular passages, whereas systematic theology looks at the Bible as a whole. It's the difference between part and whole. You see how that clears up a lot of them. Those of you who have studied in, a th in seminary somewhere at some time will see how this clears up a lot of the murkiness of the difference between the two. What's the difference between biblical theology and systematic theology? If theology is bringing God's word to bear upon men. Well, biblical theology studies the historical features of biblical revelation. Systematic theology studies the Bible as a whole. Ah, but here's the, here's the real clincher, if you understand it. What's the difference between systematic theology and practical theology? Kim? Your systematic theology would provide your foundational doctrines or principles to be applied in the, system, in the practical. Oh, so systematic... Well, you said it was all applicatory, but the practical would have to build upon Oh, that's right. That's what we're told over and over again. And what is the devastating result of that doctrine? It's that systematic theology is a theoretical science totally divorced from life. And that practical theology tells us what we can finally do with this ordinary, what would ordinarily be useless information. Now, I know nobody's so crass as to say that, but that is the effect in men's lives. No, systematic theology is not lacking in applica application. The difference between systematic theology and practical theology is that systematic says, what does the whole Bible say to me about X as a way of applying the Word of God? And practical theology says, how do we communicate that so as to bring it to bear more effectively upon the hearts of men? That is, I dare say practical theology is a subsection of systematic theology. It's asking, how does God want us to communicate effectively? All right. Ethics is theology. It's bringing God's word to bear upon the hearts of men so as to do something, to deepen their covenantal relation with him. The knowledge of God is a covenantal relationship with him. Does the unbeliever know God? Ralph? Yes. Does he have a covenantal relationship with God? No. Well, I guess he doesn't know God then. Does the covenant... When God issues a covenant, when God enters into a covenant relationship with somebody, does that mean blessing no matter what? No. No, there are also curses to the covenant, right? right. Does the unbeliever know God in curse, in disobedience and judgment? Uh, yeah. yeah, Romans 1. That's right. For God is known. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who what? Suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Knowing God, they neither gave thanks, right? Gave him his due honor. Okay. The unbeliever knows God. The unbeliever is in a covenantal relationship with him of curse and damnation and judgment. All right? So all men know God. All men are in a covenantal relationship with God. 
not a covenant relationship of blessing and mercy and grace such as we know in the church, but all men have a knowledge of God. Does ethics then deepen the covenantal relationship of the unbeliever? You can be very sure it does. Because when the Christian says, it's the Lord's will that we not kill innocent, unborn babies, and the unbeliever hears that and says, but that interferes with the lifestyle that I want, and the unbeliever goes ahead and kills the innocent child nonetheless, you have deepened that covenantal relationship with God. Deepened it, what, toward blessing or curse? Toward judgment. For when we declare the will of God, it's a savor of life unto life and of death unto death, Paul says. Consequently, the declaration of God's will increases the damnation of the unbeliever if he will not obey, if he will not so have his heart softened, if he won't repent, won't come to Christ and have the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And it deepens our covenantal relationship with God because it shows us how he wants us to live. All right. Ethics is theology so as to gain a knowledge of God, and in particular, it's systematic theology rather than what is called practical or biblical or exegetical theology. It's asking questions of the form, what does the whole Bible say to me about X? What does the whole Bible say to me about envy? What does the whole Bible say to me about love? What does the whole Bible say to me about murder? What does the whole Bible say to me about theft? Okay? So, ethics is bringing God's word to bear upon men, it's theology, so as to deepen their covenantal relationship with God, so as to give a knowledge of God, in the form of systematic theology, by asking questions, or answering questions of the form, what does the whole Bible say to me about X. And then here's where the distinctive part of ethics comes in as a way of determining what actions, uh, what person's acts and attitudes receive God's blessing and receive God's curse. We want to know what kind of action, what kind of attitude, uh, what kind of person will receive the blessing of God and what kind will receive the judgment of God. That's systematic theology, asking questions about X, where X has to do with acts, persons, and attitudes that receive blessing or cursing from God. Now, we'd like to ask some questions about that. I know this is a little more formal than the discussion we've been having, but I do think we need to get a little bit of that into our notes. Do you have a rough and ready idea of what I mean by ethics and what we're going to be studying in this course now? Okay, Jim. Please go over again your, uh, what you said in regards to the uh, distinction between systematic and practical theology. Yes, practical theology is applicatory, even as systematics is applicatory. However, in systematics, it's the whole range of questions, anything that can take the value X, if I can speak in logical terms. Any question that is asked where the whole Bible is brought to bear in answering it is a question for systematic theology. Practical theology is a particular X. How do we best communicate what the Bible says to modern man or in our contemporary situation? How can we get this message across? How can we get it ingrained into people? What's that? Well, in practical theology, a person might study, say, counseling. Um, when a person comes to you as a Christian or to uh, the pastor as the shepherd of the flock and has a problem, say a marital squabble, and... Um, the study of counseling is the study of how one can best communicate the standards of God and the conduct of the Christian to this person. How can one best communicate that? Now, that may have to do with rebuking, confronting, praying with the person, sympathizing with the person. Um, but it's a study of what the whole Bible has to say about the proper communication or preaching. Doesn't the Bible teach us how we should preach? Doesn't the Bible have standards for evangelism? 
so forth. So practical theology is applicatory, but it's only one small portion of systematic theology. Now, I'm not, I'm not telling you what is the common custom and in the, in the common way of schematizing things today, um, although there are a lot more uh, professors of theology saying this sort of thing, but nevertheless, the standard doctrine is that systematics is theoretical, practical theology is applicatory, and I'm trying to break out of that mold. So communication is, is the basic distinction between Well... <clears throat> what I'm saying is that communication, broadly understood, is a subsection of systematic theology. It's, it's one of the questions. How can I best communicate? But another question is, uh, what are the two natures of Christ? Okay? Now, what does the whole Bible have to say about both these questions? That's what we want to find out. One of them is a question in systematics in general, and the other is a question in what is traditionally called practical theology. Okay, we have just a few minutes before our break. I'm going to change gears now. We've tonight talked about why you should be taking a course like this or at least showing some interest in Christian ethics. I've talked about how ethics and theology, practice and theory can't be separated. I've given you some distinctives in ethics, the difference between prescription and description, things like that. And I've given you a Christian definition of ethics. Okay, so that's basically our introduction to the study of ethics. What I want to do now is get into the philosophy of ethics. Or if you will, since we know the, you know, the, the lay of the land around us a little bit now, we know these distinctions, we know the definition, we know why we're here tonight, that sort of thing, I want to start talking about the principles of ethics and our outlook, the philosophy of ethics. And the first point that I want to uh, point out, the first point I want to give you, is the supremacy of God's word. The supremacy of God's word as the key question in the history of theological ethics. All right. I'm going to be giving you a historical survey trying to point out the supremacy of God's word is the central issue in this history. And it's a history, mind you, of theological ethics. I'm not going to be giving a history of philosophical ethics just yet, although we will get to that tonight. But in the history of philosophical ethics, there's a whole other question that is paramount. There's a different question altogether that becomes the key. And what I'm going to try to argue is if we can understand how Christians, how in theological ethics we settle our main question, we will be given an insight into how to settle the main question among the unbelievers when they study ethics as well. All right? Let's study just for a few minutes here then the history of theological ethics. First of all, you'll remember that in ancient Greece, the concept of the polis, P-O-L-I-S, the concept of the city-state, the concept of the state or the city, the polis, was the source of ethical authority. All right? The city-state determined what was right and wrong. Socrates had such respect for the city-state that he would not violate its authority. All right? When Paul went to Athens preaching the gospel, you notice that he had to be cleared for the preaching of the gospel. He had to have the approval of the city of Athens. The polis had to decide whether this was right and wrong for him to do this. 
The source of ethical authority then in the ancient world was most generally the polis, the city-state. Let let me belabor the obvious here. I'm not going to be talking about a lot of detail. I'm going to give you the history of ethics from ancient Greece up to 1970 um, in about 20 minutes' time. So uh, nobody will, uh, I hope, get too unhappy if I overgeneralize a little bit. But the polis is the source of ethical authority. Now we see that conflict between the polis and the true source of ethical authority already in the New Testament, don't we? Those of you who are in my uh, Sunday school class on Revelation will know that we've been studying Revelation, the 13th and 14th chapters, in great detail. In Revelation 13, we see the beast, the beast, who is, whether you take a a, a futurist or a preterist approach to the book, the beast is a political figure, maybe a future political figure for some, for me it's a past political figure, the Roman Empire, but nevertheless he's a political figure. The beast insists that if his name and his number is not upon somebody's forehead and hand, they will be executed and or not allowed to enter into the marketplace to buy and to sell. All right, and who does battle with the beast, according to Revelation? The lamb and the 144,000. They refuse to have the authority of the beast impressed upon their forehead and hand. Well, what is upon the forehead and hand of the righteous, the saints of God? According to the Old Testament, God required that his law be written upon the forehead and upon the hand so that the way you see things, the way you evaluate things, and the way you operate in the world, your behavior and your thinking are both governed by the law of God. The beast says, no, not God's law, but my law. The beast deifies itself. Consequently, Paul viewed the powers that be, quote-unquote, in in, um, Romans chapter 13, Paul viewed the powers that be as ministers of God. They may be magistrates, Paul says, but in God's eyes they're his ministers. And they're under the sovereign rule of the resurrected Messiah, the Lamb of God, who, according to Matthew 28, has all power and authority in heaven and earth. You see, there's no power that, that is that doesn't owe its allegiance ultimately to the one who has all power and authority, Jesus Christ. And so already in the early church, there was a struggle between the polis, the source of ethical authority for the ancient world, and Jesus Christ, the Lord over all. And that's why when the early church, the ancient church, formulated its creedal statements about uh, Jesus Christ, the person of Christ, those Christological controversies in the early church simultaneously reformulated and challenged the civil law of the secular divinized state. If you do some reading in church history, you'll see the effect of those early councils on society and uh, civil codes. The church was saying that the source of ethical authority is found in Christ. Interestingly enough, the key ethical theologian of the period was Augustine. What is Augustine's best-known work? The city of God, right. The city of God wages war with and competes with what? The city of man. The earthly city versus the heavenly city. And so Augustine's work, it seems to me, epitomizes what I'm getting at here. In the early church, the key ethical question was, is the source of authority in the polis, in the city of man, or is it in the city of God? Is it in the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God? Now let's move on quickly to medieval ethics. In the early church, 
the key issue was the polis versus Christ, the city versus Christ, the city of God versus the city of man, if you want to put it another way. Now, in the medieval church, canon law comes to be divorced from scripture more and more by a particular philosophical dichotomy that some of you will know very well and others it will sound very strange. That's the dichotomy between nature and grace. In medieval ethics, the key issue becomes the, the relationship of nature and grace. Again, I, I'm overgeneralizing, but to put it very simply, uh, the doctrine of Thomas Aquinas and other scholastics like him was that there were two sources of ethical authority, nature and grace. That is, by natural reason and natural law, a man can find out certain things about God and about right and wrong. Okay, there is a natural working in the world that's visible to all men, and by his natural abilities, the natural man can look at the natural world and come up with certain answers to ethics. And theology, by the way, too. But the natural man can't answer all the questions. He can only go so far. And at that point, grace must take over. Then you must have a revealed ethic. Then God must speak through revelation, special revelation, and give us answers to our ethical questions, as well as filling out our theology. So the natural man, Aquinas thought, could prove there was a God, but it took the Bible to show that it was a triune God. The natural man could, could prove that killing was wrong, but only the Bible could give us the exceptions to the rule, that sort of thing. So there's a distinction between nature and grace, between natural revelation and special revelation, between what the natural man finds on his own and what uh, the Christian man can find revealed in the Bible. Now we come to the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformation attacked vehemently this dichotomy between nature and grace. This distinction between natural law and revealed law was challenged by the Reformation, which taught that there could be no autonomy. If somebody says that the natural man can find out certain things to be right and wrong on his own, then that person is teaching you autonomy or autonomos. Uh, the Greek words there mean self-law. That in his natural ability, totally apart from special revelation, totally apart from the Bible, the natural man can figure out a law on his own. He can get an ethical standard on his own. And the reformer said, no, there will be no autonomy. According to Calvin, the validity of God's law held as the binding moral standard over every aspect of human behavior, even the state, even social ethics. Let me put it another way. For Calvin and for the other reformers, all ethics was theological ethics. There was no autonomous ethics. All ethics was tied to the law of God. Now, I brought along just for the interest of some of you, the most recent issue of the Journal of Christian Reconstruction, from which I won't have time to read tonight, but uh, it's a symposium on Puritanism and law. It happens to serve as a very nice historical survey of the first-generation reformers down to the southern um, theologian divines of last century, uh, showing that it has been the persistent doctrine of the Reformed churches and leading Reformed theologians that God's law binds every aspect of human behavior, including social ethics in the state. 
and uh, I think this would be a good thing for you to pursue a supplemental reading if you would like. Um, you can read in Martin Bootser. Uh, Bootser says that any magistrate who will not follow the Old Testament laws with respect to crime and punishment is a person who does insolence to God and has no respect for his wisdom. You can read in Calvin, how Calvin insisted on the death of adulterers because God's law specified it. You can read in the New England Puritans, John Cotton, how God's law in the Old Testament was explicitly written to the law code of uh, the New England colonies. You can read in the English Puritans, especially those of the Westminster period, how they taught that the law of God and especially its underlying principles were binding on all men in all ages and in all areas of life. The point is that the Protestant Reformation laid um, uh, the axe at the root of autonomy. Now, of course, the Reformed churches maintain that they're always reforming. Autonomy has not been completely wiped out by any means. The Reformation didn't settle all the issues, and much more needs to be done, even in our day. Um, I can't hesitate, and I don't think it would be improper for me to comment on this either. There are some who believe that we've gone as far as we need to go, and nothing else needs to be said. But I dare say we need to continue reforming, and more and more we need to work out the implications of the Reformation's attack on autonomy so that God's word and God's law comes to govern all of life. But the Protestant Reformation wasn't the end in the history of doctrine and theological ethics. After the Reformation came Bishop Butler. And what did Bishop Butler introduce? But basically an Arminian ethic, an Arminian ethic which maintains that we need not begin with Scripture in answering our ethical questions, that reason guided by human conscience can, on its own, settle certain elementary questions of morality. Ethics is to be supplemented by theology, said Butler. It is not to be guided by theology. Consequently, Christianity and special revelation, the Christian ethic becomes virtually a republication of natural ethics, even as Butler maintained in apologetics that Christianity was republishing what was already taught in nature. And so that if you studied the way that a mother hen has sympathy for her chicks, you can already learn there that God would give his son for the life of uh, his creation. So Butler thought in his apologetic. So he also thought that the natural man, guided by conscience, autonomous conscience, could work out certain ethical problems, and Christianity simply republished in a better form those same conclusions. What did Butler introduce? I know I'm being simplistic and overgeneralizing, but what did he reintroduce? He reintroduced the old nature-grace dichotomy. Maybe not with that language, but that scheme and that thrust is there. It was retrogression, you see, in terms of the Protestant Reformation. And after we take a 10 or, well, let's say a 10-minute break here this evening, we'll come back and see what happened. Once Butler, you see, put his foot into the door there, then, then Hume and Kant had everything they needed to take the decline of theological ethics all the way. And that leads to modern liberalism and modernism, neo-orthodoxy, and that brings us right up to our own day. So don't go away. Come back <laughs> right after the break.